He has no rival and he has no equal. Right now and forevermore, God, Jesus Christ reigns. That you do something to us. Those of us who cry out, amen, that is right to do that. Those of us that speak hallelujah, that is right. Those of us who in our hearts it wells up and we say, praise God in our hearts even. This is the right thing to do. We have a tradition in our church where we kneel before we preach. It's not magical. That is to position our bodies before the Lord. That is, he has no rival. He has no equal. He is above all. He is preeminent as Corey read from Colossians earlier. We are low. He is high up and he is great and he is highly exalted. The name above all names. So if you can, I ask that you join with me in kneeling as we pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you that he's always been the plan before the foundations of the world. Thank you that in him all things were created and for him all things were created. He created all things. Thank you that he's before all things. Thank you for his perfect life as a man. Thank you for his perfect death on our behalf. Though he was not do such a thing, he took that on. Humbling himself by adding to himself humanity. Thank you that he did not stay dead, but he came back to life. I pray that we would remember that and thank you that he ascended now and is at your right hand. Help us to understand that, even to picture it now. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. I think, kids, you can go. Todd often says, children, and this is, I think, according to Psalm 127, children at Summit are not a burden, they are a blessing. And that is true. So I think it's awesome when they run out. Um, some of them do look like they have more energy than I have ever possessed um, as they do that. But that's good. I've noticed, so I don't, I don't know if you know how old I am, I'm not going to say, but over the past maybe, I would say like 20 years, there's been this focus in churches on, I would say, returning to preaching Christ. That, that doesn't mean that the church stopped preaching Christ, but this, uh, what I would say, Christocentric preaching, right? We preach focused on Jesus Christ. Whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the Bible is a book about Jesus. Now, it's a book about many things, right? But the Bible is a book about Jesus. And I, as I was thinking about a psalm to preach, I thought about, like, who gets to decide who Jesus is, right? Because everyone admits that Jesus existed. But beyond that, there's all these different viewpoints on who he is. If you watch movies, like, Hollywood wants Jesus to be this hippie. You can tell how I said that. I'm not a huge fan of hippies, um, perhaps. Sorry for any hippies in here. Um, Jesus loves you too, but he is not a hippie. There's all these views on who Jesus is. And what we need to do, the only one who has authority to determine who Jesus is or or to tell us is God. So we want to look at Psalm 110 this morning. If you could open your Bibles or move there in your device. Psalm 110. Because this is God the Father declaring who Jesus is. So we don't get to decide who Jesus is. 
The Bible tells us who Jesus is, and we can be confident in that. Psalm 110. I'm going to make random eye contact with someone. Who's going to do it? Are you, are you there, Eric, in your Bible? Good. Eric's there. Uh, maybe he's faster at finding passages than you are. Um, maybe study his techniques, but I, it looks like most people are in the word. Now, Psalm 110. I'm going to read it first. Please follow along in your head. It's always hard when a preacher says that, right? Follow along. Does that mean he wants us to read it out loud? Then it's this awkward, weird, flowing sound through the... I'm just going to read it. You just read it in your head or with your eyes. All right, I'm going to start before I dig myself into a dumber hole than I already have. The Lord says to my Lord... Sorry, I missed a part. I missed a part. A psalm of David... Psalm 110, this is a psalm of David, as Jasper pointed out, from the Psalms. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment against the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. A Psalm of David. It's important. Sometimes you see that when there's in the Psalms, you see a Psalm of David, a Psalm of Asaph, maybe a miktem, which is a type of song of David. That's the inspired word of God. So we think like, oh, an editor threw that in to help us. Well, how did the editor know that that was a Psalm of David? It's because the original text indicated that this is a Psalm of David. And David's writing about something. He wants us to have a big view of something. So the challenge this morning is, do you have a big enough view of Jesus? Do you have a big enough view of Jesus? There's a tendency when we're together to jump to want to have a quick answer to that. I, of course I do. I'm here, aren't I? But do you have a big enough view of Jesus? A Psalm of David This is important when you read the Psalms. You have to know the mindset of the person who is writing it down. So we're going to talk about that first. The David's mindset. As we read the Psalms, when we know who authored them, we can think about what that person went through. And also, that will help us understand how that person thought and what they were focused on. And perhaps in the Psalms especially, why they chose the imagery they chose. So a Psalm of David, first of all, he was a shepherd. So maybe his mindset in this way, and these are my words, not uh, uh, David's, but a shepherd would say, I humbly care for my sheep. Remember that? David, a shepherd boy, kind of like the least of his brothers. Every, all of them got to go fight. He took care of the sheep. So shepherds humbly care for their sheep. David was also a warrior. And he had this mindset that peace comes by defeating enemies. Right? So there's all these enemies. They're all around us. And there's no peace unless enemies are defeated. That's a warrior mindset. A warrior mindset. He also had a mindset of being the anointed king. Symbolically, oil was dumped over his head. So he had this mindset. He knew 
I'm chosen by God to lead his people. So shepherd, warrior, anointed king. And then covenant promise. He had this idea of a covenant promise. That is, we can read it in 2 Samuel 7. God promised that my throne will last forever. So think about these things as we're going through the psalm. Think about David's mindset. He's the author of this. He's writing it with experience as a shepherd and a warrior. He's writing it as an anointed king. And with this covenant promise that his throne, David's throne, will last forever. And he says this. The Lord says to my Lord. So if we look at the next slide on the screen, the Holy Spirit is showing David something as he writes this down. The Holy Spirit shows something to David. And the way we read it is a little confusing because what the Holy Spirit is showing to David is that the Lord is talking to the Lord. The Lord is talking to the Lord. So we read that and in our English language, we're like, I don't, is God talking to himself? How does that work? My friend Jeff in Florida said he was witnessing to a woman at a gas station because that's where you witness to people, at a gas station. And this woman just started laying into him giving in the business in terms of the idea of the Trinity. It's like, how could that possibly be? Did God talk to himself? Well, it seems when we read this that God is talking to himself, but it's more nuanced than that. It is the case and it isn't. When we look in scripture, we see that the Lord is the personal name of God. The personal name of God. So you see it up there. So in scripture, in the original text, when they wrote this down, they had four letters they used to indicate the personal name of God. That's what God said his name was. When you read it in Genesis, and he revealed this to Moses, my name is this. Here's the deal. No one knows how to pronounce those four letters because they feared God so much. I think they feared mispronouncing his name so much that they stopped saying it. And they made it a rule And I would say a rule that didn't need to be. So they stopped saying this name of God. It's not an instruction in scripture. Some people would use not taking the Lord's name in vain as a a key to not pronouncing however you pronounce that. That's not what taking the names of the Lord in vain means. If you want to know more about that, ask Dennis. He's talked about it before. Or Jasper. What does it mean to really take the, the name of the Lord in vain? It has more to do with the song that we just sang than saying a bad word. But the Lord the personal name of God. So some people would say Jehovah, which is just, it's kind of based on a a transcription. So that's not God's name, but we get it. When we say Jehovah, that means what other people would say, Yahweh. It's God. And in, in our text, so I don't care what translation you have right now, I almost guarantee those will be in small caps or all caps, where it says, the Lord, If you're like Glenn Karsten and you're still in the NASB, if you're an ESV guy like Jasper, I don't know if Dave Plindon-Smith is here in his NKJV translation, it says the Lord, Lord, small caps. Even if you're still in the 80s using the NIV, that's totally cool. It'll say the Lord, all caps, like that, small caps. So when you read that, think about the personal relationship that God has with his people. And if you are in Christ Jesus, the personal relationship that you have with God and Jesus Christ, the Lord. It's a person, the person of God, his name, the Lord. And then there's this other Lord, 
which in Hebrew, uh, and I don't speak Hebrew, but no one speaks the Hebrew that they did then. Some of that's been lost. Certainly people can read it. But there's this word Adonai. And the the word you see on the screen is one way to spell that in English. It's transliterated. We don't have the same letters as Hebrew. So we have to use English letters to mean things. And we're trying to match pronunciation. But the pronunciation isn't super important. The understanding and the meaning is what is important. Adonai. That is more of a generic term and it means master or king. So Hebrew Adonai. So Yahweh is talking to this master or king. And we have to figure out as we read this, who's my Lord here? David's writing this, we know it. Who is David thinking of in the spirit as this is written down? Who is my Lord? So we see it, Matthew 22, it's also in Mark 12 and somewhere in Luke. Who's my Lord? Look on the screen there. Now, well, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Very, very good question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? One thing I want to cover is when it says in the spirit there, it says that's David is prophesying. That is, he's filled with the spirit and he's speaking the declarations of God. Everyone agreed on that regarding Psalm 110. Jesus wasn't saying a controversial thing there. Everyone agreed that this was about the Christ. Psalm 110 was about the Christ. So here's the deal with the Pharisees. Super annoying. They, they, they did not like Jesus because he was different, but ultimately he spoke with an authority that they were envious of. People followed him and they hated that because they wanted to be follow, followed and, and to feel important in that way. So they're asking him all these questions and he basically answers every one of them. And then he, he essentially chooses to shut it down with the question that he asks. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Now, on that left side, they're right that he's the son of David. Second Samuel 7, this promise made to David. Your throne will be eternal. Your, your throne will be everlasting. So the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they're right about this lineage. But then Jesus points them to Psalm 110. And he asked a question that they're not able to answer. They basically shut their mouths and walked away when Jesus asked them. So David said this. How can David, prophesying, filled with the Spirit, we agreed this is a message from God. How is it that David calls him Lord, Adonai, when he said what he did in regards to the the middle of the passage there? If David calls him Adonai, that is, if the king calls him king, how is the Lord there, the, like the son of David. In all the passages, they, they basically walk away. I believe in Mark, it says some of the people were like, yeah! Reminds me of that scene in The Chosen. I don't know what you think of The Chosen, but there's a scene where De- Jesus casts out a demon and it's just silent. And then John the Baptist is like, yeah! I love it. So, everyone's quiet. And it's a yeah moment. But 
the Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders had this view of the Messiah, of the Lord, of Christ, that was incomplete. They're like, come, descendant of David. We know about the shepherd king. It's written. We know about the warrior king. We know about King David, who basically, by, it's seemingly by his work, Israel was made a great nation, and enemies were defeated. So come, descendant of David, shepherd, warrior, king, and destroy our enemies now. Take care of these Roman oppressors now. And Jesus says to them by quoting Psalm 110, you don't think enough of the Messiah. You want him to take away all these problems that you face now, but you don't understand your real problem. And you don't understand how great the Messiah truly is. As we go along, I don't want to keep bringing up the question, but we should remember, hey, given what this psalm says, do I have a big enough view of Jesus? Do I have a big enough view of Jesus? Jesus is Lord, this psalm says. Yahweh, if you'll allow me to use that name, says to the Lord, the King, David's master, These things. Are you underestimating Jesus? How would you answer that question? And then how would your bank account answer that question? Or the way that you live your life answer that question? Or what your friends and family say about you answer that question? What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? And what are you making bigger than Jesus right now? My point in saying this isn't to diminish the things that we go through. To say, oh, we should make them lower. We go through some big things. I know some of you right now are dealing with cancer in your life. It's a big thing. Some of you have dealt with death recently of loved ones. People very close to you. I know that some of you feel as if your marriage is on the precipice of disaster. And other ones of you have just faced divorce And you don't know how to climb out of the pit that it feels like you're in. So I'm not trying to say, hey, those are no big deal because of Jesus. What I am saying is, Jesus is such a big deal. That in comparison to Jesus, those things can be solved and taken care of by his power. So we we treat the lordship and headship of Jesus kind of like a theological concept. When we're in church, we know it to be true, so we want to echo it but we forget the practical implications that he's Lord. Jesus is for Sundays, but we designate all these other experts in, my li- in our lives for the other days of the week or the other things that we go through. Do you have a big enough view of Jesus? What does the word of God say about Jesus? What does Jesus say about himself? He's the perfect picture of the unseen God. Colossians 1 says he's the image of the invisible God. We cannot see God, but in Christ Jesus, we are able to see God. He's the perfect man. He created all things. All things were created by him and for him. There's nothing created, nothing exists that he didn't create in terms of physical creation. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. So I don't know how the human body works like mitochondria. I just remember that that's a word from science class. I think it's called the powerhouse of the cell. 
I have, I have no idea. Dennis could answer those things about the physical human body. But here's, here's the deal. Jesus holds the mitochondria together. The thyroid, which I don't have because it had cancer in it. Jesus holds my body together even without a thyroid. The prescription is the way that he does that in this case. Praise God that he's raised up people in science that I can take a replacement for a thing that I lack because of the brokenness that came into the world because of sin. All things hold together in him. Our country, all nations do not fall apart because of him. This planet does not tilt in a way that would burn us all with the sun because of Jesus. In him, all things hold together. Churches continue to exist despite division and crazy things that happen because of the power of Jesus Christ. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. Scripture calls him the archpoimenos, the arch shepherd. You could say that Jesus is the head pastor of his church because that's what the Bible says. New life begins with Jesus. He rose from the dead so that in everything he might be preeminent. Maybe your translation says, in all things he might have first place, surpassing all others. He's God and he used that power to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. You cannot, and it's impossible to overestimate Jesus' power. Does Jesus have a first place in your life? It's interesting. It feels very youth groupish to say, right? Does Jesus have the first place in your life? Or maybe like independent fundamentalist guilt guy, right? Does Jesus have a first place in your life? Right? But I'm not saying this to try to guilt you into, into, well, try harder to love him. Try harder to serve him. I'm saying it because it's a practical statement of truth from the word of God that he is due first place. You can't overestimate him. He's incapable of nothing. With him, all things are possible. Anything that you are facing right now, you can get through that through the power of Jesus. And look what the Father tells the Lord Jesus. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So now we're getting into specific things. He's Lord, but Jesus is exalted by the Father. From that, we should lift up our eyes and seek the things that are above. So sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is where Jesus is right now. After he rose from the grave, he stayed with the people, but then he ascended and he's seated at the right hand of God. He was invited there by the Father. And there's this word until there, until. What's the timing of it mean? Jasper's going to preach another sermon series about that. He just shook his head no. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This reminded me of Colossians chapter 3. It's not on the screen. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles, but please listen. If then, or since then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So if Christ, and since Christ is with God in heaven, and we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus, 
to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The faith, the only way to do this is to look upwards. That's why we will often say, keep your eyes on the summit. Don't spend all your life focused on earthly things. What is happening right now? The problems that you have right now. Spend your life focused on the things that matter in heaven. God has set Jesus at his right hand. He's promised that he will put Jesus' enemies under his feet. We don't have to worry about things in regards to enemies, even when it feels like the enemies are winning. God will take care of those things. Look at verse two. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus is a conqueror. So live victoriously by his power. So David, remember, we got to remember David's mindset as he's writing this. To him, the word Zion represented basically like the place of God on earth. It's where God's people were. The Lord sends forth from Zion, from this place where he is, the, your mighty scepter. That is the power of Christ. And he's saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. God sends out the power of Jesus from Zion to rule over his enemies. So from this, don't live in subjection to God's enemies. Live in victory. To do this, you must understand what victory actually is. And unfortunately, it's become one of those words that we greatly misunderstand. What does it mean to win? We as people, but collectively in humanity and then more narrowly in the church, we have very often a small view of what it means to win. A pretty small view of victory. I'm going to use the example of air travel. Just So my son Brock, I don't know where he is. Sorry, I'm going to pick on you, buddy. But we flew to Arizona last spring break. It's great. Never rains in Arizona. Not even when I go there. Um, and we get off the plane. And I'm like, I love air travel. It's absolutely amazing. You're flying at five, like 535 miles per hour. You can go several thousand miles in like four hours. It is, I wouldn't say it's a miracle, but it's pretty awesome that you can do that. And then you talk to Brock or any other 10-year-old, I'm like, isn't this awesome? And he's like, yeah, I had my own screen on the back of the seat in front of me. Like, can you, be- can you believe how much God has blessed us that I have in-flight entertainment? And they brought me two ounces of Coca-Cola with 40 ounces of ice And hit my shoulder with the thing. And they go by. Sorry, it's a little bitter there. Um, We have a small view of victory. It's like flying on an airplane and celebrating stale pretzels that kind of satiate our hunger. And in-flight entertainment that keeps us entertained. So that you don't know the seat is only about eight inches in front of you. When you are living out an amazing thing to go to a beautiful place and experience amazing things in life, and even to conduct ministry in all these awesome places, because of air travel, we can have a bigger view of what victory is. 
Unfortunately, we tend to define victory more by the standards or the things that enemies appreciate. Wealth, power, relationships, ease, and comfort. But the power of Christ is sent forth to conquer enemies. The enemies of God have no authority over you. Christ is the authority. He has the power. So here's the deal. Stop focusing so much on the enemy, the devil, the demons, the the divine realm, whatever political party, whatever nation, whatever conspiracy. The way to live in victory is to focus on the power of Christ. Not spin your wheels, wasting your time, obsessing about all these lesser powers, whatever they might be. Christ has won you freedom from sin and death. That's the vacation. The other things are the stale pretzels and the screen. And the enemies are under the feet of Christ. This is the truth from God in his word. Verse three, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now remember, we have to think to what, what is David thinking here? What is David focused on as he writes this in the spirit? Jesus is commander, so volunteer. Here's, here's the deal. Um, I think I've said here's the deal about four times now. I'm thinking in my head, what are other ways I could introduce a phrase like that? We'll see what God does with it. What do you think of when I say volunteer? Someone have the guts, say it. Dennis, when I say volunteer, what do you think of? Firemen. Firemen. All right, volunteer firemen, we get the idea of that. Anyone else? Boy, we're all brave in other settings, like to get the first dessert, but all of a sudden it's, oh, I don't want to say anything. Serving, good. That's the one I wanted to hit on. When we see volunteer on the screen, especially in church, they're like, oh, he's going to do it. He's going to try to guilt me into being a children's ministry thing. He's going to try to get me to like move tables. And I can't, first of all, I can't get you to do anything. Separate sermon there. But we look at volunteer and we think like, I'm going to sign up to commit part of my time to do something right? I'm the, I serve in the welcome thing. I do this and that. And those are all good things. Service to the Lord. In love, through love, serve one another. That's what the scripture says. That's not what that verse is saying in verse three. When it says your people will offer themselves freely. There's another setting or another meaning for offer themselves freely. And it's more about volunteering like you would think of in a military setting. Volunteering for the army. In World War II, they had a draft. In other wars, there were drafts as well. But there were all these men who didn't want to be drafted. Not because they were afraid of war, but because they wanted to volunteer and sign up. And their mentality went like this. If I'm going to go give my life up for something, I want to be alongside other people who have chosen to do the same thing. And there's a next level to that. The elite troops. So in World War II, it was the first time they established paratroopers in the United States Army. Men wanted to do that because they're like, if someone is crazy enough to jump out of a plane, they're going to be crazy enough to give up their life for me too. Verse 3 is talking about the people of God. Your people will offer themselves freely. Your people will volunteer. They will give their whole lives for the sake of the cause on the day of your power. 
They will want to do the dangerous mission. But here's the beauty of it. They're in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. David was a bit poetic. I don't know if he would have worn tight jeans in our day, but he could express ideas in terms of poetry that are very meaningful. So think about God's people in holy garments from the womb of the morning with the dew of their youth being uh, Christ's. Capture that picture. It's, it's in vogue in some cases. I've seen it on bumper stickers. Kind of poo-poo or mock the church. The people of God, right? I love you, Jesus, but I hate your people. This is about the people of God in holy garments with a power to serve him. So if you get discouraged at things that have happened to you in the church or sometimes a seeming lack of movement in a direction that you would want the church to go or the people of God to go or how the people of God bicker or sometimes seem powerless, I want you to think of verse three in Psalm 110 differently. Picture a beautiful army standing at the edge of vast fields in blinding white robes of righteousness that they've received from Christ. An armor glistening in the light of his glory, their commander. Each one as strong as a warrior in his prime, standing together in the power of our commander. Like it says in Philippians 1.27, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destructions, but of your salvation and that from God. Jesus is commander, volunteer. But think about volunteering in the right way. Verse four, the Lord has sworn. So God is making an oath and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is king and priest. So rest in the permanence of his sacrifice. Who's Melchizedek? You see it in Genesis 14. Then explained in Hebrews seven. Very interesting. He's a king and a priest at the same time. So he's a king of righteousness. That was, that's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. And the king of peace, or king from peace, from Salem. He was greater than Abraham. So Abraham gave him tithes, 10% of what Abraham had. So Melchizedek was due tithes, but then also able to bestow a blessing to Abraham. So he's greater than Abraham. Now to us, that's like, well, great. Who's Abraham? Abraham was everything to the people of God. Their father. He had no beginning. Scripture does not indicate the lineage of Melchizedek. No one knows where he came from. Scripture doesn't say. So he was a priest before there was a priesthood. And he has no end. This is interesting. We learn this in the example set in Hebrews 7. When the contrast is made, we realize that Christ is a priest not by lineage, but by God's declaration here in Psalm 110 and the power of an indestructible life. And it says in Hebrews 7, because Jesus is a priest without end, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You do not have to live your life completely torn up, 
always weeping and wrapped around the axle at your failures. Greater than any effort you might put forth in your life is the power of the priest king sitting next to God the Father interceding for you and ultimately pointing to his perfect, one-time, permanent, eternal sacrifice for your sake. When we read Hebrews, we recognize life is not about things being easy, but about Jesus in heaven being who Jesus is. Therefore, it says in Hebrews 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths to your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Rest in the permanence of the sacrifice of Jesus. Verses five and six, the Lord is at your right hand. Jesus is carrying out God's will. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment amongst the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Jesus is judge and executioner. Do not ignore or downplay his anger at pride and sin. There's a tendency when you read verses five and six, and this is fine in your own study, but when you hear it preached, your brain, many of you, wants to go to what is, what's the timing of these events or how will these things work out? The point of this is to show you how much God hates sin. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Don't take a light view of sin. An uh, important way to help people understand this is to ask the question, what are you saved from? So ask your kids that. If you have younger kids, I'll do the same. What are you saved from? I know that we will all say this, and this is right. We are saved from our sin. Right? We're saved by Jesus from our sin. But there's a depth to that that for some reason many churches will not preach. And that is the wrath of God at sin. The white, hot, furious anger of God at sin and the pride of men's hearts. You can't preach the gospel without understanding how much God hates sin. Look again at verses five and six. There's all these things that we put a focus on. They have the appearance of power. Kings, right? Nations, chiefs, all torn down. Only one thing will matter. So no one's position on this earth will matter in the end. After everyone has been given ample time because of the patience of God, in the end, anyone, anyone, whether they're the greatest of greatest position in the world, anyone or the lowest position, anyone who rejects Jesus Christ will be shattered over the wide earth. If you look on the screen, you see that this is not from one passage in Scripture. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. 
And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Verse 19, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." We must stick to what the Bible says. That is what Jesus is rescuing us from. And it will be, if you could forgive my terminology, an absolute bloodbath for those who reject Jesus Christ. We know John 3.16, but we must understand John 3.17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God loves you. He sent his son so that you would not have to face that wrath. And that's why it says we're not destined for wrath in Christ Jesus. God is patient, but he will not be forever in that. He will judge, and he will pour out his white, hot anger at sin. I'm glad that I'm on the winning team, and most of you are too. Verse 7. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus is relentless. So wait patiently and confidently as he makes things right. So we tend to, if time allows, and it generally does, do a sermon collaboration. That is, everyone who's involved um, in leadership at church tries to get together and plan out the sermon well. That is, is the guy preaching it? Does he understand it? Um, is there a clear outline? Uh, does it match in accuracy what scripture says? Is it useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that we're equipped for every good work? All these things that the Bible is supposed to do and says of itself, we want our preaching to do those things. And then also there's this key aspect of it is, is it exaltative? That is, does it lift up Jesus Christ? So we had that on Wednesday at one o'clock. We got to verse seven and the guys there will remember this. It's really hard to know what verse seven means. Like, 
He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And I think this is a key of why we must remember the authorship of David in this case. So remember David's mindset. He's a, a shepherd, a warrior, and a king. As I look at verse 7, I think the meaning of it is clear. And I want you to with me picture the priest, judge, and King Jesus doing this. Chasing, chasing, chasing down his enemies in the desert, in the wilderness. It's hard work. And there's this stream alongside the path. And kind of like Gideon, he just scoops down and gets some water to quickly refresh himself. But then he's back at it. And then, and then he lifts his head and continues his pursuit. He gets his water and then he goes and continues his pursuit. Jesus is going to finish what he started. He'll drink from the brook, by the way. That is, he'll refresh himself and he will lift his head. He will be exalted. Typically, we end the sermon with a prayer. Depending on the church you grew up in, maybe they ended the sermon time with a benediction. And I would like to do that instead rather than praying. You'll see it on the screen. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. And I'm going to read it as a a benediction or a prayer over you. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.